Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Hello, listener. Thank you for joining us. This is episode 16 of the Digital Bulletin Podcast and the first of 2021. New year, same faces for us inside the pod. Digital Bulletin content director, James Henderson. Hello, James. Hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And our CEO, Romilly Broad. Happy New Year, Rom. Very happy, isn't it? It's brilliant. I was going to ask how how you're both doing. 2021 feeling any different, James? Uh, Not really. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Well, I feel like um, I've said this so many times that obviously I could be completely wrong, but I do feel like there is some light at the end of the tunnel, but it would be disingenuous, wouldn't it, to come on and say that everything's fantastic. It does feel now nearly a year into this this time. It, it's hard, but we've just got to keep grinding away and trust that in three or four months it will look different. Um, we've said that many like, times, but yeah, you sound like Boris Johnson talking about light at the end of the tunnel. Um, yeah, so I'm re- that's quite offensive to <laughs> compare me to that man. But uh, yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. I'm hoping, uh, you know, that's all I have. Hope is all we all have, I think. Rom, do you have much hope? Yeah, actually, loads. Uh, one one thing I've become quite good at, and I suspect that's true of most people, is peering through the darkness to snatch at threads of of hope and light right so you you sift through all the chaos and and pain uh, and find good things so you can look at the the, the surging uh, increase of people being vaccinated and things and you can see that there's an end point there which is glorious which is you know freedom you can see um well maybe this is stretching it a bit but there's an inflection point going on in terms of the world and how it reckons with itself particularly with politics and in the US and everything and hopefully we come out of this darkness into something of a better understanding of ourselves and each other and so I'm hoping that by the time we get to the end of 2021 when we're talking about the things that we talk about we're doing it in the context of uh, of, uh, of a much more enlightened society that can refocus on important things like climate change um and stuff like that but we'll 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 see won't we and we might even be able to do that that pod together rather than apart that would be amazing wouldn't it yeah <laughs> would, wouldn't it yeah well that got quite philosophical there thanks for that Rob. well ho- hoping to bring a little bit of light into your lives listener today coming up on the pod we'll be doing some quotes market research with our panel on some of the more interesting tech and gadgets to have emerged from last week's consumer electronics show We will chat over our case study on Green Flag and hear from Eggplant CEO John Bates on the future of intelligent software testing. But first, here's some news. We had a very big story last week in tech. Pat Gelsinger, CEO of VMware, is leaving to become CEO of Intel. He's returning to the company where he spent 30 years earlier in his career. Gelsinger helped triple VMware's revenues during his nine-year stint in the top job. He starts back at Intel next month. Also recently, we saw Google finally complete its $2.1 billion acquisition of Fitbit. The deal had to clear various regulatory hurdles, but is now done. Google insists the acquisition is about devices and not data. Elsewhere, as President Trump's administration is dragged kicking and screaming from the White House, the US has shelved plans to block investment in Chinese tech giants Alibaba, Tencent and Baidu. 
If you think that's the end of US-China tech industry wranglings, however, then I think you're wrong. We've also seen Qualcomm agree to buy Nuvia, a major move in the chip industry. Visa and Plaid terminate their $5.3 billion merger agreement. And Elon Musk's Starlink is to enter the UK markets with its satellite broadband. How exciting. Now, you can get a collection of the best reporting on those stories and many, many more via the bulletin on digitalbulletin.com. But next, we are going to take a look back at the biggest virtual event of the year so far in tech. The Consumer Electronics Show, or CES 2021, was wrapped up last week. This is the time of the year where tech companies tend to get their customers very excited about new products incoming. Now, normally on this pod, we stick to the nitty gritty IT stuff, but we're going to have some fun and get the thoughts of the panel on some of the more wacky gadgets and tech that emerged from CES. Virtual influencers, robot cats, chewing gum for gamers, smart smoothies, all of these were actual things that were actually showcased at the event last week. Um, maybe talk a bit about those later, but I think they're not quite as relevant. But I've got, I've got three products I'm going to throw to Rom and James to see if they bite. First one, now face masks have become very much normalized over the past year, of course. One company is trying to solve the impracticality of a face mask with the mask phone. Now, this is a face mask that combines a mask with a microphone and earbuds into one, quote, streamlined design. Guys, what, what do we think about this? I mean, is this something, Romy, that you would wear out and about, do you think? No. No? Um, Why not? Well, I think there's something dystopian about the fact that people can invest in developing this kind of technology because it basically says, right, there must be a long-term future for for covering our faces with things like this. And I, I kind of, it, I, like our optimism uh, conversation earlier on, I refuse to accept that, that, that that's going to be the way it is. And <laughs> uh, I'm not going to allow that into my head, no. Okay, James, can you imagine a, a real-life scenario where somebody wears a face mask but also needs to have high-quality audio and um, a microphone to basically speak to people? I mean, I don't know why or what the issue is with a face mask and wireless headphones. I don't, it feels like <laughs> it feels like it was a product that that didn't need to be designed. Is that not already a thing? I don't. I don't really understand. I'd like to. I don't have a look. How much does it cost, by the way, Ben? Do you know? Well, I'm looking now on um, one of the stories I've pulled up here, um, but I, I can't actually see a price. It's probably like like most of these products that CES showcases. It's probably not even in production. It's probably not even actually ever going to happen. It's probably just a gimmick that um, is trying to get clickbait. Okay, yeah. Well, right I don't now. really, I don't really see the needs. People, you know, Bluetooth headphones are um, very reasonably priced now. You know. Not most people have have a pair, but many people have a pair. I don't see why anybody would buy this mask rather than just buying some, what you know, Bluetooth earbuds. I don't get it. So yeah. not not one for me. But it's all in one, right? I'm not going to play devil's advocate. It's it's everything in one. Yeah, but I don't. But I don't need it in one. <laughs> I don't. I don't understand it. What I would say is, I have had headphones on with wires and put a mask on. And when you take it, I have forgotten that and then taken it off, they've got tangled up. But is it really that bigger inconvenience? I'm, I, I, I don't know. Like I said, uh, it's just not for me. I thought you'd have been all over these, James. Um, Rom, <laughs> it, it, it is a strange one, isn't it? Because I think 
in a situation where you need to wear a face maybe it's like in in a in a future maybe in the in the next few months where we kind of return to offices but maybe have to wear face masks is that is that kind of use case for this do you think no one i mean it's one of the things that's probably true is that we're never going to fully escape um things like coronavirus um it's it's safe to assume that while we might get back to a condition of um uh you know relative normality there's still going to be an endemic problem of of this particular virus and its variants right it's something that's probably going to keep coming back and so therefore mask wearing as it has in asia actually for years might become a much more normal part of, of how we go about our lives fine so that's probably what they're betting on um in terms of there being an addressable market for their kind of masky earphone thing but um i i agree with i think that the essential problem is these masks right you need to wash them fairly regularly otherwise they get pretty nasty and i'm not sure do you i do you what do you do just throw this thing in your washing machine it says here that the the mask fabric is retractable and is machine washable so you can d detach it from the tech and machine wash it so you know that's your that problem solved from james can i tempt you into some of the other facts here 12 hours mm. of playtime on the um mm -hmm. on the headphones it's water resistant and works with uh assistants like amazon alexa siri and google assistant are we tempting you in not really i think that what i what i was expecting to see in term and it's related to face masks is that so do you think that and obviously in asia face masks have been worn for a long time anyway haven't they like pre, pre, this predates covid what i'm surprised we haven't seen yet is any technologies that can do face recognition with masks on right because obviously i, I use a apple device I think you do too but, and all of them are sort of unlocked by face recognition and obviously they can't do that with a mask on so i'm surprised we haven't seen anything yet i don't know whether it'd be like an eye scanner or something like that um so that that's a technology related to masks that i would be interested in seeing but <laughs> not a um detachable bit of cloth with some cheap headphones on no not not for me well, let's move on to project brooklyn now anything that has project in front of it is obviously going to be amazing slash completely unrealistic now this is well they, they they call it a futuristic gaming chair but i'm thinking about it in the context of a of a working from home individual who you know is, is stuck in the same room um trying to be as comfortable as possible working from home all day every day now the, for the benefit of the listener this is a chair that is obviously highly futuristic in its design but the main attraction is a 60 inch kind of wraparound led screen which sits pretty much a few inches in front of your face <laughs> wow rom rom i can see you sitting in this chair right now actually i can Me see too. you in that yeah well, that's amazing isn't it you could literally make the rest of the world invisible <laughs> and just inhabit zoom <laughs> permanently it's like a full embrace of uh of our new work from home kind of reality where you actually just never leave it yeah, presumably it reclines right so at night you can just sleep <laughs> and then yeah yeah it comes with haptic feedback ron what's haptic feedback uh it's you know it's when you get little vibrations through whatever device or technology you're using your your phone when it does a little vibration things or or the suit in uh, ready player one you know the film where he's wearing the suit and and um things touch him either ladies or explosions and he feels it <laughs> 
what? I mean, that's that's a haptic suit, right? I think yeah, that's okay. the idea. So what Check. do you do? It massages you in 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 uh, whenever you get a, an email notification or something. Or well, is it exclusively maybe. You'd be getting a lot of massages then, I think, Rom. Um, James, it, it comes with a collapsible table where you can say, so basically, you can have your entire computer set up on your lap, effectively. So wow. you've got a, a keyboard and a mouse right on your lap, and then you've got the screen wrapped around your head. Uh, right. What, what do you reckon? I mean, obviously, it's undeniably, it is quite cool. Like, the the um, the renderings of it, you do think, yeah, that is that is pretty cool. But, like, we are... Even before lockdown, quite a you know a sedentary generation, the 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 idea that we we now don't you know never mind don't leave an office don't leave a chair and can have that sort of whole set up and just inhabit this sort of faux real you know realistic environment. I don't I don't really like it. It's quite disturbing. It's quite Black Mirror ish, isn't it? You know you could. Are you feeling yeah. uncomfortable about seeing mine and Rom's faces on the, on a one hundred and eighty degree LED screen? A few inches. Oh, yeah. extremely. And I, I, so I had a look at it, and um, so it's a it's a rollable display. Yeah. And LG brought one out recently, and it was eighty seven thousand dollars, <laughs> right, for just a screen. Um, so whether I like it or not, I'm not sure. I'll be rushing out. Well, um, it's interesting, sir, because in the article, Razor, the company that has put forward Project Brooklyn, um, didn't reveal the cost of this chair, but expect it to be, quote, insanely expensive. <laughs> <laughs> it's, one, it's, one of, it's one of those products, isn't it? If you need to ask how much it costs, then you can't afford it. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, in, in, in seriousness, no, that, that, that is... The reason this is this is interesting is because of that rollable display, right? And if you, you remember back when you know uh, flat panel TVs first came out and 4K TVs, and they were sort of cruise ship sort of levels of expensive, and you couldn't do it. But now they're completely ubiquitous, and you pick one up for a few hundred quid. I think this is the beginning of that. You see these signs at things like CES, and then eventually we can say these rollable displays, flexible displays, and so on, are going to become quite ubiquitous and normal a few years down the line that's quite exciting because all the huge number of applications you can imagine for that once it becomes um you know cost effective for people to actually buy them um these seats might just be normal um even though we're kind of being a bit silly now when they're cheap you can just attach them to the back of your chair it might just become a normal thing because vr I hope, makes you feel sick. I, hope, I, I do hope it doesn't become a normal thing because that sort of the detachment of reality and work and normal life has become so blurred already. The idea of sitting on one of those stations, it, it just it makes it feel like it could become a lot worse. Even yeah, so you, you I, almost you almost imagine yeah. sitting in your front room, you and your wife sat in two of these chairs communicating through this screen, even though you're sat in the same room. You know, it's going to be in, you're going to be inextractable from this um, this kind of seat. I think. Yeah, constantly reminding your kids not to touch the display while they're eating their lunch. <laughs> Get your greasy fingers off it. No, no. That, that's $87,000. Don't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, to make a serious point, though, like if we imagine, I think all of us agree that remote working is here to stay, whether you know full-time or part-time going forward. We do need to, I guess, optimise our, our home work environments. And obviously, this is 
very kind of futuristic, but um, there's definitely a case for this kind of thing, isn't there, James? Oh, yeah, there definitely is. And any any technology that is able to make people's lives easier working from home is going to do well. I'm just not sure it's this product. But, yeah, um, yeah, I think the market, for for home working is obviously going going to explode over the next couple of years you know common wisdom says that we people aren't really going to go back to the office five days a week there's going to be this sort of hybrid model so being able to have a proper office at home a proper kit yeah it's going to be a real growth market but i'm not just not sure about this one yeah i agree with you, james definitely a black mirror episode i think that's. yeah um right the last one this is this is something that i always just think is just so ridiculous um it's the, the Cadillac Cadillac EV toll. Now, obviously, that means nothing. This is an electric autonomous personal air taxi. Right. I mean, let's let's just <laughs> James. Can you ever see yourself in your lifetime traveling in a an autonomous air taxi? I don't think so. People will say, "Well, of course you don't." But these sort of concepts or technologies have been kicking around forever, haven't yeah. they? The, we the were. Thing. We were supposed to be doing this already. And I just think, I'm not sure if it's ever going to be viable. And uh, uh, why? What, look at the autonomous car market at the moment, which is far more realistic than personal flying electric taxis. Um, far more money poured into it. And what you see in the, the autonomous car market at the moment, you saw, saw Uber um, sort of getting out of the game last month. And I'm actually writing a piece for it for the next issue of Digital Bulletin. The last 5% is all, is always by far the hardest bit, actually taking all that concept and then putting it into practice. Um, and I just think with concepts like this, if, if they can't get autonomous cars to work at, at the moment, um, and I'm still not sure if they ever really will, if they'll become a mass market thing. There, there will be concepts and there will be areas where they happen, but to actually everyone on the road being autonomous cars, they don't even know if they'll be able to do that. So the idea of people flying around in sort of autonomous electric taxis in airspace is just, if we can't get autonomous cars to work, how on earth would you ever get something like that to work? Yeah. And I think a telling line in this in this article is at, at the bottom where it says General Motors, which owns Cadillac. General Motors isn't committing to production, <laughs> let alone citing a time oh, when we so might basically, be basically it's a it's a couple of drawings and a cool video. Rom, I'm expecting you to make the case now for autonomous personal flying taxis with electric batteries. I reckon you, um, I reckon you will. Well, I, I actually I do think that they are. Then there's a there are enough people working on this. Um, there's a lot of companies working on this sort of stuff. That means there's a lot of clever people who've thought about the business case for it, who uh, and who are pretty confident that it's worth investing a ton of money in. Um, I wonder, I don't think it's ever going to be something that's accessible to a, a lot of people, but it might be really handy for certain applications. A taxi? Probably not. An emergency vehicle? Maybe. Um, and all it is really is an extension of the, the drone type technology that's already, you know, on the near horizon, um, just, you know, with a person in it, 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 rather than a, you know, an Amazon package. So I, I don't think it's unrealistic. And actually, the, the biggest drawback has been uh, how do you how do you get the batteries to to work in a, in a in a way that you've got enough energy density in the batteries and that it doesn't take crazy amounts of time to um, uh, how do you make them light enough and then how do you you know recharge them quick enough all of that's uh, 
changing really quickly. In fact, just today I saw an, an announcement about um, some new uh, battery technology that's just been proven at, at scale that you you know you can recharge these batteries in five minutes. Um, so that's that's all transforming. The next decade we'll see uh, the electrification of transport generally um, really really embed itself. Um, this is perfectly possible. Will people ever willingly, you know, jump in one of these things just to get down the shops? Also, um, the infrastructure isn't really there for it either in, in any mass sense. You know, if I was going to get in one of these, I'd want to take it to McDonald's or, you know, the corner shop, or I'd want to take my kid to school. I'm not sure that's ever going to really be practical. <laughs> Without, you know, I don't want to lawnmower a bunch of school kids with the, with some fan blades. I mean, that, that would be a bit harsh, wouldn't it? I'm imagining, a, a, imagining a, a helipad on top of a McDonald's for flying taxis. Right. But yeah, no, I, I do think that this is valid, actually. And, and there are big companies like that who are developing these concepts and investigating and investing in the technology, not necessarily to make something like this, but they know that it's going to be a thing. So they want to have the expertise and the skills and the patents and you know, all the rest of it in order to be playing a part in the industry as it as it evolves. Yeah. James, what do you th just think about these products, kind of all of them, really? What, what do you think the purpose of CES really is and why do companies pitch some th these qu quite kind of what you might think unimaginable and unrealistic things? Um, is, is it all about publicity? Um, are there other sort of factors at play? What do you think? I think it, uh, publicity is definitely one. Hype is another. The, CES has become the show, hasn't it, or the exhibition to, to be seen at? Um, to make a, a splash with, I think that certainly with CES as well, you position yourselves in the mind of whether it's consumers or investors as being really innovative and really forward thinking. So it's about placing your company there, isn't it, as being a leader or an innovator in, within technology. Um, I think that's what it comes down to. People want to be seen to, to be there. And um, it does seem to be the case that the more outlandish the concept and product the, you know the more column inches or or time or on podcasts such as this you get spoken about so in that in that sense they've, they've done their job haven't they yeah none quite so ridiculous as a robot cat which uh, to be honest I, I didn't even give it any more credence than that i just i just glossed over it but um you're both dog owners i know um how about a robot cat to throw into the mix room well i mean Cats are a bit like robots anyway, aren't they? Just sort of slightly evil ones. They're like mini Terminators or, or whatever. And they just, they turn up every now and then to feed off you and then just disappear to murder things. And then they come back with the bodies. Like, what what is this thing going to go and do? Yeah. Who who knows? Who knows? Well, I'm <laughs> listen. I'm, I think I'm, you'll be glad to hear that what we're going to do is move on from this <laughs> from this conversation. Yeah. But there are obviously loads of places online where you can um, read up on CES 2021 and all of the gadgets and tech that emerged. There were some some fairly big um, things actually from some of the big chip and processor companies um, out there as well. So it wasn't all about gadgets. We'll return. We'll be back. We're off for a smart smoothie. Um, we'll be back after this short break. Find us as Digital Bulletin on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram and at Digi underscore Bulletin on Twitter. 
For this month's case study section, we are going to review our project with Green Flag, which was published in the January edition of Digital Bulletin. Green Flag, which is part of insurance giant Direct Line Group, is one of the UK's biggest roadside recovery providers. If you break down in your car, they sort it out for you. Now, Green Flag wants to move from a telephony-first model to a digital-first model, which means it needs a fairly substantial upgrade to its technology architecture. We're going to discuss Green Flag's digital transformation story in more detail, but first, here's the company's managing director, Dean Keeling. Fundamentally, Green Flag is and always has been a good company. It's got a great model. We've got people who are passionate about customers and uh, we, we go the extra mile for our customers. But I think it's fair to say we've done that with capabilities that are 20 and in some cases 30 years old. Really, we need to now make this generational leap into having an operating model that's fit for purpose for what the next 10 years are all about. So, Rom, coming to you here, we've got, you know, the old legacy challenge, the classic thing that we talk about a lot. But I think in the example of Green Flag, right, the potential gains from this kind of digital first approach that they're looking at are massive, aren't they? If you imagine a, a company that is based wholly around telephones and that kind of technology to move to a, a digital infrastructure that would deliver a far, far better customer service. This really is kind of a, a business transformation, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's root and branch. Um, the Green Flag is a, a really interesting company that's got a kind of a, and a, it's it's a really great brand as well more than anything here in the UK because they've they've got a very honest uh, backstory in the sense that you know there there were major automobile associations if you like that people uh, were used to relying on to 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 help them out in case of emergency when their cars conked out. Um, Green flag came along and said, "Hey, look, let's. We've got loads of independent, you know, um, garages and workshops all over the place. Let's just hook them all together into a network, and we can provide that as a kind of membership option. Uh, and people love that. They've got a great, um, very loyal customer base. But that's really human. That's kind of that's that's really kind of belts and braces, uh, local human stuff. And they've built themselves a legacy of systems. But as you say, especially telephony." based that helps them to run all of that but now they want to do way 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 more they've, they've got all of that sorted now they want to be, give themselves options to do to provide a whole load of new products and services and that's how fundamental it is as a company they can't necessarily very easily develop new products and services at all or change in terms of what they're able to offer to their customers without addressing this kind of technology uh, question at the heart of it and so that that's really what it is all about and that it cuts right to the core of the whole business. It's not just a technology story. It's about everything the company hopes to uh, achieve over the next decade or more. Yeah. James, we talk about customer-centric industries a lot. This is obviously one, isn't it? Customers, green flag customers are often in kind of an acute need. So in any kind of advantage that the company can gain in, in delivering a better service for them is one well worth doing, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's one of those, isn't it? Like a insurance policy that when you take when you take it out or when you sign up for it, you you rather hope that you don't have to use it. But um, I, I've certainly been there, and and when it happens, it it can be unnerving. So you, you want to know that you can reach the company easily, that you can get information from them easily, and that they'll, they'll be there as quickly as possible. And I think that they. 
by going digital first, they're reacting, aren't they, to the chain to you know how how customers work, how that how they want to sort of um, li to liaise with, with with companies that they're dealing with. Um, and I think that what I got out of it was a digital transformation. It, I think Rom said it, it's a company wide thing. What I got out of it was that it's really helping green flag because it's it's helping it to make better sense of all its data that it has to hand and and dig in sort of trends and analysis which is obviously hugely important when when you're thinking about sort of breakdown and recovery and when you know when do you need most people on call and that sort of thing um but obviously it also helps the customers as well because they they can stay in context so when you've got a digital transformation which benefits both the business and the customer base that's sort of like I don't know, sort of lightning in a bottle, really. That's that was the main thing that I got out of the out of the story. Yeah, and, and to completely take a new approach to those two things, customer service and business kind of performance, is is brave when you when you're an established company and a, a company that was doing well. You know, Green Flag started this project a couple of years ago. It was a successful company at that time, and it was growing, and it had it had great customer scores. I think it's the net promoter score, um, they call it, and the, their net promoter score was really high. But um, it was it was the MD, Dean Keeling, joining the business who really, really came in and saw, look, we have a business that's good, that's working, that people are happy with, our, our employees are happy, our customers are happy, but in 10 years, is that going to be the case? And I think it takes quite a lot of um, foresight and, and ambition to start a program like this. So they're only two years into it. I think it was Jeremy Bristow, who's the chief product manager for Green Flag, he said that that the last two years have got them to a position where you know they've done a lot of kind of back end stuff. They're now at a position where they're able to deliver the same service they were able to deliver two years ago, but in a completely different way. The key now is the next kind of three years and adding, as Rom said, building out a, an ecosystem of products and services that go far beyond just helping somebody in a breakdown. They kind of they want to have a much deeper relationship with their customers. And I think it's a really interesting story. Now, for a bit more context, Green Flag has discarded its kind of legacy systems, of, as we've said, and built from the ground up a new serverless platform out of AWS. So this is all cloud native. Um, it's already launched a bunch of AWS services to improve its offering to customers. But technology change of this size also requires a rethink when it comes to people and process. One of the most interesting parts of this story, in my view, is Green Flag's insourcing of its IT team and the introduction of its Scaled Agile for Enterprise Operating Model, or SAFE. This way of working has been so successful that it's now being rolled out across the entire business, including in commercial teams, in marketing teams, not just in technology teams. So it's really interesting detail. And here is Chief Technology Officer Shaquille Butt talking a bit more about the people and process side of transformation. Our architecture is actually based on a number of discrete platforms that are built which link together and operate as an overall ecosystem. And each platform is linked to a specific domain, technology domain. And if I then overlay on top of that, our scaled agile for enterprise or safe operating model, it then meant that I was able to allocate a designated scrum team to each technology domain, which then had its own discrete platform that they could own and build and maintain. So I have a scrum team that looks after our website, I have a scrum team that looks after our customer-facing mobile app. I have a scrum team that looks after our uh, rescue platform, our claims engine, if you will. Another team that looks after pricing. And each one of these different platforms is completely self-contained. So that's great because that ticks a lot of boxes from an agile perspective around empowerment, autonomy, ownership, etc. 
Now, Rom, we know historically a lot of IT has traditionally been outsourced, but over the last kind of decade, we're seeing a lot more kind of insourcing of talent at companies. I think Green Flag now has, I think it's over a hundred people in its technology team to look after it. And, and as Shaquille was saying in that clip, people really kind of focused narrowly on on very um, specific elements of its technology architecture. When, you know, we live in a world now where technology has become so complex, you know, across clouds, across various different environments, various different networking capabilities, complex tech needs looking after, doesn't it? And I think this is a, this is a perfect example of that, of, of Green Flag bringing in some very, very talented people. I know recruitment has been a real a challenge for them, but it's also seen them be able to bring in some seriously kind of talented people into a roadside recovery business. Um, yeah. there's a, that's a trend we're kind of seeing, isn't it? Yeah, for, yeah, it's certainly, um, not the first time we've heard about, you know, the safe, um, methodology and how you can deploy scrum teams. Um, and, um, and then there's a whole bunch of kind of personnel and, uh, other topics around that, like servant leadership and various other things that can help all of that to work. So direct line, like a lot of other companies that we've spent time with, um, have that recruitment challenge, as you've talked about, which actually, in, in essence, ends up just driving up the cost of, of these people that you're kind of insourcing. Um, and so, you know, why, if that's going to be a very expensive thing, why would these companies do it? Well, the reason they do it is because um, working in an agile way, having microservices that you can kind of plug and play continuously so that you're constantly moving means that you can extract way more value out of those teams because they're able to work and deliver new things far more rapidly than, than you know, an old kind of top-down hierarchical bureaucratic waterfall technique or whatever. And so that's, you know, that's what the two years has led up to, presumably for, for, for Green Flag. I mean, it, it's very reminiscent of, of something we, uh, we we peered under the lid at Deutsche Telekom last year and they were doing very very similar things uh, on a kind of different sort of scale i think there's uh, there were 10,000 um, it people at Deutsche Telekom but actually exactly the same thinking which is to say let's um, let's build a whole new way of people working uh, and make it in house and then we can um, give them new technologies to work with and it all adds up to being um, a net gain in value um, by quite a long way and actually you end up with a lot of a lot happier people both on the inside and on the outside in terms of customers because you're able to deliver much more much more quickly to them and provide um, a, a happier kind of place uh, a more challenging place to be sometimes but also a more rewarding um, place to be um, historically a lot of people who worked in technology would, would you know especially in big organizations would find themselves working in um in in fairly closeted structures where you know you could imagine things getting a little bit frustrating because it would take 18 18 months or two years to go to market with anything and and now it's going to take a matter of weeks potentially depending on what it is so it's it's really interesting to see how um, um advanced green flags you know strategy and thinking is in all of that certainly in relation to other things we've done and seen yeah, and I think if if um, if you want to go and read the piece, there two two of the other companies that we got involved in this story were um, Contino and ECS, and both of those companies have have had advisory roles with Green Flag on how to basically upskill um, their Green Flag's people in kind of cloud native working, and there's some really interesting detail on that. Um, James, 
it's, it's all well and good in sourcing um, IT teams. Obviously, the the end the end result is often optimal, but the road to get there is very difficult, isn't it? Because there just aren't enough people. As, as you know, this is a topic we cover in Digital Bulletin every month, pretty much, isn't it? How the skills gap is one of the biggest threats to kind of the technology industry as we move forward. Yeah, and it's one of the few areas which really hasn't been affected too much by by COVID. Obviously, the, the the roles that are in demand maybe are slightly different because of it, but that skills gap is still very much there. Um, we know, for example, that um, cyber attacks are are up markedly over the last year, um, and the types of attacks that that are happening. Um, I mean there aren't enough cybersecurity staff at the moment or, or or you know highly qualified cybersecurity professionals so that's a, that's an area where um there's a massive chasm between what you know what companies can bring in and and and, and what they need um and that's only going to get worse because the working from you know we're still getting used to this sort of hybrid model of working from home and office and it the, net, the networks are obviously different because of that. So the, the threat is, has, has changed. And you'd say that cyber attackers, if numbers are to believe, have been able to jump on that. And enterprise is still sort of mobilizing to know how to deal with that. So there's that. There's that, definitely that security gap there. Um, and that sort of relays into, into crowd infrastructure. You're talking about being cloud native and, and, and many more companies are now. Um, and there simply aren't enough IT professionals who are skilled enough to build cloud infrastructures, which can utilize tools like automation, which companies need more and more and AI. So those roles are in massive demand. Um, and you are right, it's something that we, we speak about qu quite a lot in Digital Bulletin, most months really. Um, but I still haven't really, I'm not convinced that I've really heard the, the answer to it yet. We, we talk about enterprise having to be closer um, to academia to you know to make sure that graduates are coming out with those right skills we talk about companies having their own in-house academies is really important as well um, but we still don't have anywhere in, in near enough of them and it, it's certainly a a buyer's market out there and you can understand why the you know the really skilled IT professionals why some of them prefer to contract, you know, because they can demand huge rates and they, they can ensure that the work is different. They can work for different companies and really choose their own projects, really. So it's, a, it's, um, it's something that they have that, that, that as a as an industry technology hasn't, I don't think, really got to grips with. Yeah, I think the truth is it's it's going to be the triumvirate of industry, academia and, and government that is going to have to somehow come together and and solve this okay folks um that was good we're going to conclude the green flag chat there you can read the full case study all three thousand words of it over on digitalbulletin.com and watch the cool. videos as well of course <laughs> wow. meanwhile we'll be back after this power up your day with the bulletin brief the latest news insights and opinion delivered straight to your inbox For this month's pod, I caught up with John Bates, CEO of Eggplant. Eggplant uses some pretty sophisticated technology to test and monitor software. As businesses grow more and more reliant on their software, fast but thorough testing has become vitally important. In the interview, John talks about how artificial intelligence is changing the game and shares insights on Eggplant's fascinating partnership with NASA. But first, I asked him to define bad software. Well, bad software is 
is software that stops you hitting your desired business outcomes. So that can be, um, you know, providing a poor customer experience. It can be functionality problems. It can be performance problems. It can be software that can't handle load, software that makes errors. Um, but it basically, it's, you know, if you, to, for your business to be successful, you want to offer an amazing customer experience that helps you meet and exceed your desired business outcomes, beat your competitors, release new features quickly to keep ahead of the game and support loads of platforms. And anything that goes against that means that, you know, you could be, your business could be being held back by bad software. We hear a lot about amazing software, especially in this in this digital age. But how how much bad soft software is there out there? Is this a common problem for businesses? Well, there's actually just been a very interesting set of articles based on some statistics that were reported um, from the Consortium for Information and Software Quality that said that in the USA alone last year, um, businesses lost two point one trillion dollars from bad software. So. There's quite a lot of it about. <laughs> and, you know, what, what is maybe in more detail, what is the kind of impact on businesses? What, what are the consequences of, of deploying bad software, do you think? Well, it's everything from reputational damage. So if you, you know, for example, um, I think if you're if you're sort of an I think just eat, for example, in the UK, um, had, you know, I remember sort of, you know, a couple of years back they had. Uh, a blip in in their you know their food online ordering service and i think you know they have several thousand orders um every minute and i think they were out for for a couple of minutes so they lost hundreds of thousands of pounds and had reputational damage from people losing orders you know stock exchange um there's been numerous examples of you know everything from flash crashes dating back to 2010 and earlier but you know, of algorithms going wrong that have lost billions of dollars in, in the markets, you know, and we, we could go on in healthcare, in defense, in um, in manufacturing. And it's all kinds of different reflections of business outcomes, lost revenue, lost reputation, lives lost um, and so on and so forth. So that, that there's real implications from bad software. So with that in mind, I guess you'll tell me that software testing is is more vital than ever and a hugely important thing. I think it is. I think it, it's absolutely um, critical um, now, but it, you've got to look at it from a different lens. So I think let's turn it on its head and say it's not just about preventing damage, which is sort of a compliance function. I think software testing now can be a profit center. So if it can help you expose the weaknesses in your product, address them, um, you're, you're addressing the weaknesses in your business. If it can show you how you should and could get an amazing customer experience, an amazing performing product, then it can help you take a leadership in the market. So not just compliance, but a profit center. Okay. That's interesting. So how how is artificial intelligence, for example, and advanced technology helping deliver that, do you think? Well, uh, that's something we've done very uniquely in Eggplant, which is a great example of, of using artificial intelligence. Um, so traditionally, 
in software test automation, people write scripts that exercise certain elements of your um, program. So they run those scripts every time they release a new version of their software or they roll out a new version, even if they're not building their own software. So if you're in a hospital, for example, you're, you're still getting new custom versions of your electronic medical records and your, you know, and new versions of you know, the, plat the win you know, Windows platform you're running on and so on and so forth. So even, you know, even if you're just a user of software, you still have to test it for your environment, your custom environment, or your building software. Every time you roll out a new version, you, you run these scripts, and they would be the same thing every time. So you may or may not catch a problem. You just have to hope they're a problem that you'd anticipated. So with artificial intelligence and the way Eggplant has, has approached this, you have a learning engine that monitors for example what's changed since the last time and will actually automatically analyze the product and build tests that will exercise those things that have changed it will also um, monitor how people are really using the product and build tests automatically to exercise the most excess you know the most common user journeys through a product and the most valuable user journey so you might get all your revenue on an e-commerce site from one particular journey we better make sure we test that particularly if it's changed since last time and then they will also learn about where bugs are likely to be and build tests to hunt down bugs so it's really artificial intelligence is doing two things in that context number one it's actually trying to expose the weakness of your um of your product and build tests to automatically uh, test those so that you can expose them before they're exposed by the external world and secondly it's building tests to test the most valuable um, areas of your product which is what you really want to do and then there are other ways we also use artificial intelligence for example to behave like a human so to do customer experience testing you want to actually automate and have ai powered bots that use the software in the way a human would and so instead of just looking at the code you can actually use the running application on any platform and understand the images and text on the screen identify objects there be able to read the text and to be able to make sure everything looks right so is it functioning right is performing in the right amount of time is responsive can handle load and is usable, has good user experience. So there's a couple of ways there, both through the sort of modeling and orchestration, as well as using the software automatically that AI can help with. So it sounds like, John, that AI is really offering a, a big leap forward in this, in this area of software testing. Is that fair to say? It absolutely is offering um, a, a complete game changer for this area i mean no longer is this oh yeah you know we, we we run some tests it's fine ship it it's now about actually we've battle tested this and exposed any weaknesses beforehand and we've gained a market leadership position from the way it has automatically given us feedback about what we should do to to be a leader John, many technologies have found some critical use cases during the COVID-19 pandemic. Maybe talk about how software testing has, has helped during the pandemic. Yeah, well, we were terrified with, like everybody. I mean, it's been 
and it's been a nightmare if you're you know in the travel or transport or hospitality industry it has been a nightmare and i really feel for those businesses but we were all scared at the beginning um and looked at this and thought wow is this going to really hurt the business but actually we saw uh, many organizations having to accelerate their digital journey um and um indeed what that led to for intelligent software test automation was you know an increased uptake because businesses had to release new features quickly they had to make sure they were battle tested because now the number of online users had grown radically the you know the features that were being exercised had grown radically because it was a lot of behavior moved from being partly on premise you know in the real world retail for example and partly online to all online um and so it was you know real battle testing and we we also work with people like you know um uh, health organizations to make sure that their online consultancy and their track and trace and all of those kind of capabilities could handle the load um of of this new era so it was it was a step change as it was for many businesses in the digital era um in the covid pandemic yeah, it's great to hear how eggplant adapted um a, a big kind of client of yours is nasa maybe we want to talk a little bit about the, the work that you do with nasa yeah, well, NASA is very cool. They've published some papers about their use of eggplant. But if you can imagine something like the NASA Orion space vehicle, that is um, the vehicle that they're planning to go to Mars in um, within the next decade. So it's full digital cockpit, uh, unlike, you know, previous um, spacecraft where you've got paper manuals on board. This is fully digital. Um, and so, you know, you're interacting with a, you know, with, with a digital cockpit. And rather than have astronauts or humans exploring the capabilities on the ground to try and test it, um, NASA can have AI powered bots exploring both, you know, the known paths, but also the unknown unknowns um, before they encounter a problem on the journey to Mars, which obviously is more, you know, having seen Apollo 13 and the like, you know, there's obviously problematic. So the more you can expose with intelligent uh, analysis, uh, intelligent real usage before you you, you head off, um, the better. And uh, and that's exactly what NASA's doing. Sounds like we've got a universe of possibilities here, quite literally, John. <laughs> what, um, what, what do you think, final question, what do you think kind of the future then is of, of software testing? Is it that you, you can imagine kind of a fully autonomous, fully automated, predictive um, environment that you guys are building and that will become the norm for software testing, I guess? Exactly, exactly. And and Eggplant um, is now part of a larger organization called Keysight Technologies. And um, what we're seeing, Keysight Technologies is, is very powerful in the testing of hardware and networks area. Um, but what you can imagine here is a, uh, that a combination of hardware and software solutions to be able to test, if you like, the cyber physical domain. So imagine if you want to test a 5G network, for example, or an electric vehicle, then rather than just testing components, the physical layer, you know, what throughput are we getting? Um, or, um, you know, the hardware, what power consumption are we getting? Or how much uh, power is a handset consuming? If you can connect all of these hardware and software components, 
and bringing the business outcomes, the customer experience, um, you know, the the uh, the um, which leads to revenue. And, you know, if, if it's not good, it leads to churn. And can we orchestrate all of these with an intelligent AI powered layer which can switch in, you know, emulation at various layers as well as real usage at various layers to sort of say, OK, if I bring in 10,000 users in this cell, uh, what's the impact on customer experience? Or if I use, you know, a simulated base station um, and uh, but a real handset, what is the power characteristic usage of that handset when I take it down from 5G to 3G? And all of these kind of, you know, so you can, it's really about moving from testing components to testing the business holistically and being able to have AI assistance in doing that to be able to say for a whole telecommunication network, how can we be the leader? Have we battle tested this and doing the same in defense and aerospace and healthcare and retail? So this is the future, holistic end-to-end -end intelligent testing. Right, we are done, everyone. Lots to point you in the direction of. Issue seven of the Tech for Good magazine is out now, where we learn more about a COVID-19 mobile education campaign which hopes to reach 1.5 billion people and eliminate the problem of disinformation. We also have brand new episodes of the Tech for Good podcast and Fragmented Reality our sister pod, plus loads of exclusive and in-depth insights over on digitalbulletin.com. I'll wrap things up by thanking my guests, James Henderson. Thank you. Thanks very much. Really enjoyed that. And Romilly Broad, thank you very much. My pleasure. And we'll be back next month, listener. Catch you then. That was the Digital Bulletin Podcast, brought to you by Bulletin Media. Listen and subscribe to a range of podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Plug in for news, features and case studies on the very latest in enterprise technology and digital transformation.